Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Good evening. You are listening to another edition of Radio Islam. And I'm your host, Tariq El Amin. We are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM. And we are reaching the world by streaming live at www.wcev1450.com. Folks, if you have not already done so, take a moment and get with us on social media. uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all at the same username. That is at Radio Islam USA. At Radio Islam USA. It's good to be back with you, Radio Islam family. Uh, For those of you who are new to the show, we are a daily live call-in talk radio program. And we air from 6 to 7 p.m. Central, right here from the wonderful and complicated and edgy city of Chicago, Illinois. And we are broadcasting from downtown. So if you hear in the background every now and again a rumble, that's just a little bit of the little bit of the ambiance of downtown. We're right off of the elevated trains, uh, so you can get to us pretty easily because uh, you don't want to drive down here. Radio Islam family, if you would like to uh, ask a question, uh, give us a phone call, make a comment, uh, you can do that at 312-750-1178. That is 312-750-1178. Or feel free to inbox us, send us a message on our Facebook page, uh, give us a direct message on Twitter. We'd be happy to uh, connect with you and follow up and uh, just get that communication going. I first want to begin... Uh, first of all, acknowledging uh, my brother who's always in the studio with me, uh, on the board's associate producer, uh, assistant producer, I'm sorry, Ibrahim Baig. And uh, then I want to just give a, a quick moment to, uh, to reflect on uh, Chicago lost a, well, not just Chicago, I want to say the, uh, the nation, uh, because this sister had... Uh, she her reach was much further was much larger than Chicago, um, but um, Dr. Bambadi Shakura Abdullah was a was a mentor, um, uh, just an inspiration, a supporter, uh, someone that I learned uh, just just an immense amount from, who was a shining example of activism, of service, of persistence, and. She has transitioned from this life. Her janazah, her funeral service, was yesterday. And it was such a beautiful reflection of who she was. Uh, The diversity uh, in that room uh, was a testimony to how she she lived her life. Uh, It was a testimony to how she engaged others, uh, her sincerity. Uh, I will... There's one thing that, and I shared this yesterday um, at her janazah. One of the things that she told me that has stuck with me uh, for years, I believe she, she relayed this to me about 15 years ago, and it was, it says, in, in terms of relations and, and dealing with uncomfortable situations, she said, never cut what you can untie. I'll say it again. It says, never cut what you can untie. And that was, that was really who she was. Uh, She was a integral part of uh, Chicago's Muslim 
uh, community, it's interfaith community, um, and that's that's hard work. It's hard work because with diversity, uh, it comes diverse perspectives, diverse outlooks, uh, diverse priorities, and getting folks to sit down and to get uh, to to agree on a, a standard, to agree on uh, an agenda. To, to agree on a method on how we're going to represent ourselves, what our voice is going to sound like, that's difficult work. And Dr. Bombadi uh, engaged in that work tirelessly. She was one of the bridges between the African-American Muslim community and the uh, immigrant, or I would say non-African, because it's not just immigrant. You know, we have, uh, we have white, um, white Americans that are Muslims, um, and, not, and not all converts either. Uh, but convert or not, she was a bridge between the African American community and the uh, and the and the community outside of that. And she she took that responsibility uh, she took the responsibility seriously. Uh, and she did it even when it was uncomfortable. And there were times where she, like any of us, any of us would get frustrated and walk away. But she didn't cut relations because just as she walked away, she would walk back. Uh, and more often than not, um, she was a fixture in spaces that made sure that uh, sentiments of sentiments of uh, an important part, uh, we're all important, but sentiments of an important part of our community uh, were shared, were heard, were visible. So uh, this weekend, inshallah, with God's permission, one of the things that we plan to do is uh, I will be visiting uh, with some folks. Uh, we're going to do some recording. We want to give a proper uh, to examine some of the contributions uh, that she's made because uh, as many people have referred to her as a pillar of the uh, Chicagoland Muslim community, that is not an exaggeration. There's no hyperbole involved in, in that. That's exactly uh, what she was. And she leaves big shoes to fill and a lot of work for us to continue to do. So um, I thank I thank Allah that I was able to, uh, to benefit uh, from her leadership and from her, from her spirit, from her example. Pray that Allah forgive her any errors or shortcomings and that he continues to bless her all the good she's done and the good that she's uh, inspired and give her a lofty high place in paradise. I mean, all right, Radio Islam family. So what else is going on? Uh, as you may have heard in the opening news segment that Roy Moore, who was a candidate for the open Senate seat in Alabama, um, was not victorious, although he has not conceded uh, defeat as of yet. But he was not victorious. And there's a lot of different commentaries that are going on. Uh, there are a lot of different reflections that people are giving about this. And some of those reflections are, or explanations are, one, they're saying that, well, African-American women, uh, they, they came through and they have, once again, they have saved the Democratic Party. Uh, and there are others who are painting this as, a rebuke of Roy Moore and a rebuke of Donald Trump 
their policies, their politics, their views, uh, their rhetoric, and they are celebrating in that fashion. And the numbers, though, the numbers are always uh, are always intriguing, and and the numbers tell a different story. Uh, not to say not to say that it negates either of those explanations that's been given, but the numbers tell a different story. And we know that whoever is interested, uh, their views that are pushed, their explanations that are given to validate um, particular, you know, particular thrusts, particular points of view. So I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask my, my brother Ibrahim to, 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 to chime in with me because one of the things that I saw, uh, I saw some statistics earlier today which states that Roy Moore, the accused uh, child molester or who is accused of having inappropriate, I guess to put it uh, mildly, if there's a mild way to put it, of inappropriate contact with underage girls, he received 63% according to uh, CNN politics. Uh, they did, they gave a poll uh, with numbers of uh, vote by race and sex. And it says that he received 63% of the vote of white women, which is a really, there's a lot to read into that. There's a lot to read into that. Uh, he received, he received 72% of the vote of white men. And black women voted for Jones at a rate of 98%, while black men voted at 93%. Now, they respectively are 17% and 11% of the, um, of the vote that's, uh, that's totaled. Is this really a rebuke of, of Trump? Is it really a rebuke? Of more, should we be looking at it that way, or should we be really concerned about the sixty-three percent of white women that voted for an accused child molester? Should we be con- should we be concerned that seventy-two percent of white men in Alabama voted for? A man that wanted to repeal the was it the thirteenth and the fourteenth amendments? Yeah, he. I mean, he, he made these statements. You can you can look these up. I think that that in itself, those kinds of numbers, uh, when you win by two percentage uh, two percentage points, when your win is that is that narrow. Yeah, you won the election, but it shows that there's a real there's a real um, there's a real disconnection. There's another agenda. There's another mindset that exists that we're not really, we may not really be taking into account uh, the full impact of it and the full potential uh, that it has by celebrating uh, this victory and not looking at the margins that that victory came at. What do you think, Ibrahim? You think people are, are getting a little too beside themselves? 
Uh, first of all, assalamu alaikum. Good to be with everyone again. Um, I do actually tend to agree with you, in in so far as um, when I look at um, what network people on, I guess liberal biased networks such as CNN or MSNBC are saying, and they're viewing it as such a huge victory. Um, I agree with you in that the numbers kind of stick out in the sense that they weren't very, uh, it was a close race, right? It wasn't a completely convincing victory. Um, before I go on, though, I think there's more to it than that. I wanna, I'm want i looking at the CBS News uh, statistics here mm-hmm. from their website, cbsnews.com. They break it down in three ways. Um, the Alabama vote by race, mm-hmm. uh, 30% of whites voting for Doug Jones with 68% of whites voting for Roy Moore. Among black voters, 96% voted for Doug Jones, uh, 4% for Roy Moore. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a party breakdown, which is probably not surprising. And there's a broke di- uh, another breakdown. Um, women. Women voters, 57% voted for Doug Jones and 41% for Roy Moore. Um, black voters, like you mentioned, uh, and young voters... 60% voted for Jones and 38% for Moore. Mm. Um, and I think independents mostly voted for Doug Jones as well. Yeah. So to go on to uh, on our subject, I think the reason why people are viewing it as such a huge victory is for two reasons. Number one, because it was a crucial seat, right? It was Jeff Sessions' seat, and this enables the prospects of uh, Democrats gaining the majority in the Senate in the future and it was a very important seat right this is how it works there's only a hundred seats so each one is very important in determining who has a majority versus not and the second reason it's being hailed as such a victory is because um, Jones was such an underdog because um, I think it's been 20 years or something like two decades yeah. I think they were saying um, since a Democratic candidate has won a Senate seat in Alabama, is that right? Yeah, it's been about that long. Yeah. So I think that's another reason why he was such an underdog, another reason why even just a victory by a small margin is being seen as a huge uh, celebratory thing. Yeah. You know, what's also what's also interesting is the narrative, and, and this does serve po- a political purpose, um, to say that it is a rebuke of, of Trump because he did put his endorsement behind him he did a robocall, uh, and this, of course, is all geared towards the 2018 elections. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that really intrigues me. Why Trump would, who is a, as far as we know, he has a business-minded way of looking at things. Why he would make such an investment in uh, Roy Moore is really intriguing, and I think it speaks to what he's really concerned with and where his you know concerns really are because i'm thinking trump wouldn't have done that especially going so far he didn't just say you know like yeah go ahead and vote for roy moore because the other guy's democrat he actually made the robocalls and you know it was a very deliberate endorsement after he thought about it for a while so i'm wondering what was going through his sense as far as um what type of a uh payoff that he would get from that you know what i think i think we have to factor in his his psychology, what he yeah. has, what he has presented of himself, he's had more rallies after winning the election than anybody probably has ever had. <laughs> uh, this idea, this belief that he has his base behind him, mm-hmm. and that that will carry him through, 
mm-hmm. regardless of, of what the situation is. Uh, I think that's what prompted. I think it was just it was just simple uh, hubris, you know, that that pushed him to say that if I put my name behind him, that he'll he'll come uh, he'll come across the line. He'll be victorious. But and the and the sexual uh, the accusations, I don't I don't think those really mattered as much or matter to him at all because okay let's say the the allegations let's say even there's a 50 50 chance they're true right yeah so if roy moore were to have gotten elected and there's a 50 percent chance that these allegations it's going to come out that they're actually true wouldn't that be a disaster for the whole party at that point it, uh, yes that's if it made that's if it made it to an ethics um committee investigation mm-hmm and the feeling is is that it would not have that they're doing okay. If you look at what they're doing with the special counsel investigations right now, there were hearings this morning where they were what they were trying to do is they're trying to debunk the whole investigation because they're saying that there's there's a partisan bias. So I think that they would have done very much the same thing with this ethics investigation or asking for it that they would have uh, the, the Republican. Uh, uh, the Senate, the Congress, everybody would have just said we don't need it. But yeah, it would have been a disaster if it would have yeah, happened. Yeah, because I think Roy Moore also is—he's not the type of person where he's like this very polished, you know, uh, skilled politician with some weird accusations out there. Like his whole persona and his whole agenda is something that's very like uh, fringe, I guess. Yeah, and it's very kind of like a strange agenda that he has and he's even before this he was already the center of controversy with things he said about this group and that group um so i'm still puzzled by why uh trump would invest so much and have so much riding on this kind of endorsement i guess if nothing else it speaks to how much he values um his supporters yeah that's what i said going back going back to his base uh and the idea that if he called for it, that it would actually happen. It would come to being. But I actually think that this was probably a win in a way for Republicans. Oh, really? Yeah, I, and I'll, I'll, I'll say why. Because, well, they already lost. They already lost a lot of, uh, a lot of credibility with folks like uh, Mitch McConnell, who at first opposed Roy Moore, um, mm-hmm. even taking the seat or coming up for the seat. Uh, and then switch sides. Um, he's also the same one who opposed Trump, but then you know he acquiesced and switched sides again. So I think that they that this was probably good for them in the sense that they would have lost all moral credibility um, to have more seated, especially in a climate where Al Franken, who you know who has voluntarily uh, mm-hmm. resigned, John Conyers, who has resigned. Um, uh, so they should get. They should be happy they didn't get what they wished for. Is what you're saying? Yeah, ab- absolutely. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, and they may not see it that way, but um, but but obviously neither did sixty three percent of of white women voters in Alabama. They mm-hmm. weren't concerned about that. They were ready to to elect them into the uh, uh, to the Senate, which to me. In terms of race, because that's in our second segment, we're going to be talking with uh, Marguerite um, Aziza Hill, uh, co-founder of the Muslim Anti-Racism uh, Collaborative. 
I think that speaks to more uh, that speaks more to this discussion on race that we're not we're not having or really not understanding how deeply uh, it, infe- it it affects our, our decisions and mm-hmm. they were ready to bring somebody I mean guilty or not the accusation in and of itself deserves enough uh, respect and enough uh, to, to have enough gravity you know for well, it to say we're going to so, wait but you think so, but this you got to remember this is 2017, yeah. and we're living in the era of fake news hysteria, right? So it wasn't so much that they kind of gave legitimacy to these accusations and, and like voted for him anyway. I think it's has to do more with anything that goes against uh, Trump or the Republican Party or anything which is pro-establishment and whatnot. People just automatically reject it as being uh, fake news. You know what I would? I, I agree with that. Uh, I think that has some merit, but I also think that there is an element of uh, of racism uh, and white suprem- a white supremacist worldview that that's behind this idea or this label of being Republican or being conservative. Um, and I think that's something that we that, that, that you know we need to pull the the covers back off of uh, because if we're talking about your economic uh, your view on economic policy for the country, uh, that's one thing. But then it's also something to talk about why you have the, the view that you have on economic policy. You know. Uh, and, and lastly, because uh, we're going to take a quick break, I would, I would really also, I hope somebody does a poll on uh, economic, um, on earnings, on wages, you know the wages that will a wage breakdown. What are the earnings, household earnings, um, according to uh, do a breakdown on that? Are vote are people voting against their interest? That's really what I'm getting. At. All right, so look, Radio Slam family. Uh, when we come back, we're going to be talking with Marguerite Aziza Hill uh, of the Muslim Anti Racism Collaborative. So we're going to take a short break, and we'll see you in just a second. Traffic had stopped. Pedestrians were lying on sidewalks and curled up in doorways. There was no sign of violence, no wrecks, nothing like that. It was as if the people in New York had simply decided to stop whatever they were doing and pass out. Ice coated my stomach. The invasion has started. To find out what happens next, read Percy Jackson and the Olympians by Rick Reardon. Explore new worlds and check out more cool books at your local library. And visit read.gov. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. A boy born in Joplin, Missouri, was fascinated by anything with wheels and a motor. The odds of him going on to fascinate millions with his talent, one in 260,000. The odds of him having 15 career NASCAR victories, one in 1.7 million. The odds of a child being diagnosed with autism, one in 88. I'm Jamie McMurray, and my niece has autism. Learn more at autismspeaks.org signs. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Radio Islam, the nation's first daily live call-in talk radio show produced by Muslims for the mainstream market. Radio Islam, on the air since 2004 because of your generosity. Radio Islam salutes its most valuable asset, you, our listener. 
from our producers to our interns. We appreciate your support. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome back. Radio Islam family. It's another edition of Radio Islam at WCV 1450 AM. And we are streaming live at www.wcv1450.com. It's a wonderful, wonderful, complicated, intriguing day that we are in. Um, we just got through talking about the the recent Senate uh, loss, even though it has not been conceded. But we're going to transition uh, in Alabama, excuse me. We're going to also going to transition into our next segment. Uh, and we are going to be joined on the phone by Marguerite Aziza Hill. And I want to tell you a little bit about her. She's the co- uh, co-founder of the Muslim Anti-Racism Collaborative. Uh, she's an adjunct professor, blogger, editor, and freelance writer with articles published in Sisters, Islamic Monthly, and Spice Digest. She is a co-founder and co-director of Muslim Arc, the Muslim Anti-Racism Collaborative, as I just mentioned, an organization focusing, focusing on education for liberation. After converting to Islam in 1993, her life experiences as a black American woman have informed her research and writing on Islam, education, race, and gender. She has nearly a decade of teaching experiences at all levels from elementary, secondary, college level to adult education. She has worked in education at various capacities, including as substitute teacher, instructor, curriculum design, school policy, teacher training, as well as teaching assistant and teaching fellow. She taught writing and literature at Al-Aqsa Islamic Academy, developed, instructed, <clears throat> excuse me, developed, instructed an art and literacy class for Claire Muhammad summer camp and worked as a lead teacher and curriculum developer at United Muslim Masjid Summer Madrasa. She earned, a, she earned her bachelor's degree in history from Santa Clara University and master's in history of the Muslim of the Middle East and Islamic Africa from Stanford University. Her research includes colonial perceptions, mixed race identities in northern Nigeria, anti-colonial resistance among West Africans in Sudan during the early 20th century, transformations in Islamic learning in northern Nigeria and international student programs at Al-Azhar and Cairo University. She's given talks and lectures in various universities and community centers throughout the country. Thank you very much. Assalamu alaikum, Sister Marguerite. Assalamu Thank How you. How are you? <laughs> I am well, alhamdulillah. How about yourself? Alhamdulillah. I hope I didn't butcher your bio there. No, um, no, no, you did a good job. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow, I did all that. Yeah, yeah. isn't it wonderful to hear? Yes, so we thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Um, we are in interesting times, as, as I just mentioned. Uh, there's a, a convergence, well, I shouldn't say a convergence, a resurgence of the awareness of, of race, of, of, of gender, uh, these multiple identities that we have and how they play out. Uh, and present themselves um, in whether it be school, work, uh, any facet of our lives. So uh, I'm really happy to have you on with us uh, with Muslim Arc. And I would like to just first begin by asking, uh, just to let the Radio Islam family know, what is the scope, what was, what's the mission of Muslim Arc? 
Well, Muslim Art, um, we believe in liberation through education, um, that knowledge, um, knowledge is power and it sets you free. Um, our mission is really to create a world where people feel welcome, equal, and safe. And we know um, in our society and even globally, race has um, organized um, our global order, and especially in America, where foundationally um, enslaved Africans or African peoples were considered three-fifths of a human being. So that's embedded in the foundations of this country, and also it was built upon stolen land and and built by stolen people. And so addressing those foundational issues, we can get at a lot of the core social issues, whether we're talking about homelessness, hunger, um, corporate exploitation of regular people, that, that um, the powers that be have always used race to divide people. And if we can really come together um, as people of all races to address oppression, then we can all be free. Absolutely. Now, how does how do you go about this this idea of of, um, of liberation through education? It, it it makes me think about a um, a statement uh, in, in terms of politics. Uh, it says uh, education is a political act. I think it was uh, Paulo uh, Freire. Um, is is this a political act or is this a educational in in, in the sense of um, uh, the, the schoolhouse uh, act, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, education is learning is a form of resistance. Um, it's a form of it's a way of understanding. Um, and I think that it's it's important that we rethink education itself, because we know our education system, um, it was really built to create model citizens. And so the, yes. the education system that we have, especially when we go through um, K through 12, and then we get to college, we're like, I remember when I went to college, I was, I was told, remember everything that you were taught, forget all of that. We're going to tell you the <laughs> truth of what happened, you know, what happened in history. Right. And so then we were, we were taught critical thinking. And so it's important for us to understand that education is really about knowledge and skills, and that if we really look at education for liberation, that's not just teaching us to be sheep, um, to, to, you know, be led to slaughter, but really that education is meant for us to understand, better understand our world, is to get us, give us critical skills for understanding reality, um, for understanding Allah's creation. And so, um, you know, like I, I really believe in the pedagogy of um, of the oppressed, of for liberation and Islamic pedagogy, and I think it's just really um, a beautiful way of understanding that learning um, and being able to name things, especially naming things mm. that control us, that dominate us, that alienate us from our true selves. When we're able to name that, then we can develop strategies to free ourselves from that. And so that's, that's what we're really trying to do. And so it is inherently political, but it's also deeply spiritual, um, and it's deeply human. So this was being able to name creation. That was something um, in the Quran, like we, we, we learned that Allah gave Adam 
that skill. Right. And that's why the angels bowed down to Adam. But Shaitan wasn't really feeling that, right? And so, and even then when you get to that story, like Shaitan wasn't feeling bowing down to Adam. So he had this essential arrogance of his like, hey, my by my essential nature, I'm better than Adam who's made from clay. But like, there's so many things to unpack in that idea of being able to name, being able to know and understand creation. And so it is really both political and spiritual. Yes. Uh, yeah. Shaitan has often been uh, called the, the first racist. Um, but how, in, in your opinion, in the work that you do with Muslim Ark, does racism manifest itself in ways that, um, that those of us who, who grew up in, in these uh, societies that are shaped by it may not be really aware of? Deeply, deeply. And so um, what's really important, you know, for us is really understanding that racism is, you know, like what Dr. Jackson talks about, is a form of shirk. It's a form of associating partners. That, that's what white supremacy is, right? And, and that um, in many ways that um, this notion of, of white supremacy, it it's embedded in so much of the cultural production of the modern world, whether from art to mass media, um, whether that's in movies or in, you know, even in the news. I mean, if you look at the coverage, the ways that they cover um, Muslims, the ways that they cover Africans, the way that they cover people of color, and then how do they treat um, alleged or suspects, um, when they're white. So there's different language that they use, there's different symbols that they use. And so like all of this conditioning, it goes into our subconscious. And so racism within itself, it's, we have to understand it. It's not just conscious actions, but it is um, bias. It is this conditioning that we've had for centuries, right? And, um, and it takes a lot. It takes a deep awareness to interrupt those patterns, and it takes a deep awareness to understand the systems which systemic racism manifests itself, so that we can really address that and and ensure that everyone can live a dignified existence. You know that is a we all win uh, type of paradigm, a, a way of a way of seeing the world, which which you know really runs counter, obviously to the uh, to the, to the current setup where it's uh, I win and you lose, um, how do you get people to, uh, to to buy in or to see the value uh, in that type of thinking where we can all live a dignified life? Um, you know, we can all have a dignified existence. Yeah, well, part of it is when, when we can share our stories, um, when we allow people to talk and share their stories. Now, I mean, we do have to be kind of honest when, and, and recognize that not everybody's story is grounded in, in reality. And so we have to kind of allow some of those who have been um, gifted with privilege, say white privilege and the arts of dom- dominating people of color, we have to get them to shed some of that guard and some of the mythology that they, that they may defend, you know? Like some people, like, they'll defend that Confederate flag to the death, but we, we know what that flag is really about, right. right? So it's really to try to get to, okay, let's take away this system. Let's take away 
this, you know, this nationalism and let's get to you as a human being and when let's get to your human story and see what are things that affect you and how does this affect your neighbor. And then when you come together and you can shed that and say, like, look, this person has similar aspirations to you. And when we understand whether we use evidence and we use, you know, we can use facts, we can use figures, but it really is that emotional content when that domination, like those people don't feel good within themselves. I mean, I I was studying about like the Roman history where they had slaves and they were paranoid constantly, like the ways that they had to enforce uh, and dehumanize their slaves, it left those masters really paranoid. And, And to be able to tell people like, look, by you dehumanizing this other person, you're dehumanizing yourself and we could free you from that. Okay, so it's just really showing people another alternative to that fear and paranoia that they live in. And so the buy-in really comes into showing people that this process doesn't have to be so painful, that bolstering that is actually something that um, hurts them. And that's, that's where we get more buy-in. Obviously, for people of color, it's, it's easier for us to divest from it because we're usually hurt by this system. But um, there are a lot of um, white folks who, who really don't want that package. You know, like they, they, they're not sitting there um, wishing for the good old days and when there's slavery. And, you know, like, this, mm-hmm. like that's not something that they, they're proud of and they want to find a way to be free of that. And so, you know, like, I think we could start there with the willing and able, um, you know, and there's obviously some people who, who will, who, who do, who have an unhealthy self-identity and they'll hold on to supremacy as much as they can. And, you know, like that's, that's up to them, but I'm, I'm here for those who are willing, um, who want to be free, who want to get free together. Right. You know, it, it's interesting that you mentioned the the person who, I guess, who has benefited from the um, from the inequity, uh, from the unevenness of the system, and they want to hold on to it. Uh, how do you respond to the one who has been a victim of the system, uh, but who also holds on to destructive um, perceptions uh, of themselves? Is 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 that something that you have come into contact with? Yeah, I mean, we we are starting to, you know, in our, in our anti-racism work is is to to do that kind of work and, and as a trainer and as someone, you know, I, I'm, when I have these conversations, I'm in a very different situation as, as an instructor, as someone that can talk somebody through some of that and work through some of that, um, you know, the identity development. And so um, psychologists have talked about the different stages of um, like for people of color to, to become anti-racist, but also white people to become anti-racist. Yes. And so, you know, like there, there are stages that psychologists and educators who've studied this, you know, thousands of people, and they've looked at similar patterns of kind of behavior and, and dealing with the cognitive dissonance. And I think for, for us, it's really, you know, for people to understand that we're responsible for our actions and we're also responsible for the gifts that we're given and the opportunities and to, to really have some humility that many of the opportunities that we're faced with are happenstance. They, they just, by virtue of our birth or where we're born, that we're given opportunities. And it's really a matter of what we do with those opportunities to help others. And so for, 
for me, it's really trying to help people to get rid of that guilt because that locks up people when they they want to see themselves as essentially good people and deserving. But we know that we have a system that that's uh, built on competition and notions of scarce resources. And when you see people to, to understand, it's like, hey, you know, when, when your uncle hooked you up with that job, that's how you reinforce that systemic racism. You know, right. So it's like for them to kind of understand that and maybe that it is time for some of our allies to step back and, and provide more opportunities or even invest in um, – you know, and opening opportunities for, for people of color from marginalized backgrounds. Mm, mm. Uh, Radio Islam family, just want to give you a quick note. If you're just tuning in, we're talking with Marguerite Hill. Uh, she is the co-founder, co-director of the Muslim Anti-Racism Collaborative. Uh, and they're an organization focusing on education for liberation. Uh, and you mentioned uh, your allies. So as a part of the, the work that Muslim Arc does, is um, is coalition building? Is that a big part of it? And and how do you set about that? Is that something that you set about? Um, is it organic, or is it something that that you kind of you're strategic about? Yeah, we are very strategic and intentional around building alliances, and for really for for people coming together. Like we we create spaces where people of various um, faith backgrounds and um, racial backgrounds to come together and have conversations about to find out, hey, how are they affected by social issues, by social inequities, and how we can collectively work together. And sometimes it'll be through strategic planning, um, where we'll go through exercises to, to address a social issue from a racial justice framework. Other times it's through dialogue, where we'll look at how our organizations um, or social change methods can better coordinate. And so we are definitely um, invested in coalition building and resource redistribution and imagining new ways of being. And for our organization, we, we are looking at being um, to, to cultivate a network of organizations and organizers and community leaders. And so we, we really look, see ourselves as facilitating that through convening spaces, through providing resources, and connecting people both online and on the ground in spaces where they probably wouldn't normally meet up. You know, like it's, it regularly we, you know, we have people from across the country and we'll bring people together and then hopefully those people will connect more. And so that's been kind of our motto is, is really about collaboration. And we know that most of the things that we're doing, people have been doing this this stuff for generations and so we understand we want to kind of uplift the work that people are already doing so that we can learn from each other but also support each other in the work that we're doing and so our work is definitely very intentional and we hope in 2018 we can really further that by um, by strengthening that network and providing more opportunities for for allies um, and aligned organizations to come together and have um, important conversations. So, uh, so you mentioned that you, uh, Muslim Mark does work online. Um, you know, I, I follow on, on Twitter. Um, but talk to the Radio, Radio Islam family a little bit about the work that you're doing on the ground. Uh, in particular, if we could segue a little bit directly into uh, into Detroit, which um, 
is a kind of a, a hotbed of activity right now, it seems to be. It is for us. Well, we, we are incorporated in Michigan, and my co-founder, Namira Islam, she's a Bangladeshi-American um, Muslim woman. And so there you go. We have like our, you know, like that was like one of our early collaborations, multiracial collaborations. Mm-hmm. And um, but I also have family ties in Detroit and, and Michigan in general. Mm-hmm. And so it really made sense for us to um, to establish like a, our home base in in Detroit and be part of the Detroit um, revival. And so um, what we've. This past year, we had the Detroit Anti-Racism Training Conference. Mm-hmm. That was like our third anti-racism training conference. I've done those for two years in Southern California. And this year, we decided to bring it to Detroit as um, this has been such a great year for us because Namira and I have been able to, to go part uh, full-time as full-time staff. And oh, so we had I much mean. more capacity to do the kind of base building in our own in our own turf, right? And so we had the rights at risk, the Black Muslim rights at risk convening where we brought together 30 um, organizers from across the country, um, like Black organizers who work in mass incarceration and immigration to talk about those intersections. And that was like really a great two-day convening. Um, Part of that, they all participated in the Detroit anti-racism training, which was just amazing. And um, and then we had our fundraising dinner in, in Detroit. We had one last year in California. And so we kind of switch off um, for our capacity. Like I live in San Bernardino County, mm-hmm. which is probably follows Detroit as far as in terms of poverty levels. And so we're both in these kind of very interesting spaces where there's inequities, but um, and also the need to bring together um organizers and to have these conversations to kind of move folks who are normally not in national conversations about where what Muslims should be doing and what type of work, what is our kind of major national agenda. Mm-hmm. And so it's been really great to, to bring people from San Bernardino, Southern California, Los Angeles County, Orange County, and, into, and connect those with folks in Wayne County in Michigan. And so... Um, but what we do, what, what our major project right now, what we have going on is, is like we bought a, a house, um, a duplex, and that's, that's where archives. we are rebuilding this duplex mm-hmm. to be head of our, the heart of our operations. And so we're just so excited to be part of this neighborhood revitalization project in partnership with Dream of Detroit. That's awesome. So that's the Muslim Ark House. Yes, it is. Okay, awesome. You know, the 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 funny thing about, I shouldn't say the funny thing, but the, the, the bad thing about uh, being on for an hour is that you're only on for an hour. So yeah. we're, we're, <laughs> we're starting to wind down, but I want to make sure that the Radio Islam family uh, can, number one, can keep up with the work of Muslim Ark and also support that work. Uh, so uh, are there any links or... Uh, you know, just just give us give us all of that so we can keep up. Okay, well, you can follow us at MuslimARC.org, um, and that's our website where you can find information, lots of free resources that we provide, and we'll regularly update that. 
Um, our campaign for the crowdfund is going on right now, and we have people pitching in $8, 16 We have over 270 donors, and they've helped us raise so far 22000 And you can um, donate by um, going to bit.ly front slash capital A, capital R, capital C, and lowercase house, so A-R-C house. Um, and that's where we have the crowdfund until Friday. And then thereafter, we'll still keep blasting out and offering um, opportunities for folks who aren't in Detroit to lend us a hand and help us um, build up this house. Um, and we definitely, when we open doors, we welcome folks uh, from Chicago, on a, you know, throughout the country to come visit us. And to check us out, um, uh, attend our Detroit anti-racism training this summer, inshallah. We'll we'll put out a date shortly, but it will be inshallah in August. Okay, alhamdulillah. Well, we definitely look forward to to that news. And um, what we're going to do is the information that you've given, we're going to share that uh, on our uh, Facebook page, uh, Radio Islam Facebook page, so that folks can, that those who want to donate toward the Muslim Ark House can do so. And I also want to ask quickly, so you, do you have, you have opportunities for uh, folks that want to volunteer? Um, is it? Yes, we do. Okay, great, great, great. <laughs> yeah, please, uh, you can go to muslimarc.org slash join, and we are always looking for volunteers. We have online training. Um, you know, we, we offer subscription-based um, trainings, and for those who, you know, like it's, it's based on what you can afford. So if you can afford to chip in monthly, that's great. If you can't, then just volunteer a couple hours a month and join us and learn about anti-racism. We're always here for, for everyone. Well, that is wonderful. Um, it's wonderful that you're doing uh, such needed work. And we can all pray that there come a day that this type of work is not needed. Inshallah. Uh, yes, inshallah. But in the meantime, uh, we pray for your continued success, uh, your energy, and that Allah expands your capacity and, and your reach. Um, if I could ask you, can you hang on the line for a moment um, uh, as we close yeah. out? Okay, great. Thank you so much. All well, right, thank so, you. Yes. So, Radio Islam family, um, we, were, we were blessed to have uh, Marguerite Aziza Hill, uh, co-founder, co-director of Muslim Anti-Racism Collaborative, uh, on the line with us. Uh, and this will be available tomorrow, inshallah, uh, or by podcast, wherever you get your podcast at. Uh, so uh, at this point, we want to thank our engineer over at WCEV, uh, Leonard. Thank you very much. Our engineer in studio, uh, my brother, producer, um, Ibrahim Baig. Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. I'm your host and producer, Tariq Alameen. Uh, keep in mind, all views expressed of the host and our guests are theirs and not to be taken uh, as reflective of the position of sound vision. And I think that's about it. So, inshallah, we're going to see you tomorrow. We're going to have Brother Sadiq Muhammad, uh, celebrity fitness trainer, uh, joining us in studio. And now I'm going to leave you as I greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Thank you.